Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. dumb enough or, or bored enough to watch that debate last night. I tried. I really did. I think it's my obligation, my responsibility to at least make a, you know, a good faith attempt. But, oh, Ron and Nikki sniping at each other was definitely not something, uh, you know, I still don't feel well. That just made my stomach feel worse. So I switched over to Martha McCallum and Brett Baer hosting Donald Trump. And let me just say this as... uh, (laughs) as carefully and clearly as I possibly can. I mean, because obviously I'm 130% biased in this regard. But what a, what a distinct pleasure to listen to somebody who actually appears to know what they're talking about. And yes, he uses a lot of uh, street language and colloquialisms and he's not the most uh, eloquent speaker in the world but he's so sincere and he was so optimistic I'm so tired of doom and gloom I mean I'm feeling doom and gloom all the time I'm looking for somebody who can lift this country up out of the doldrums take us somewhere better and that's uh, exactly how I felt at the end of listening to him meanwhile what a horrendous day for football. And you all know that I am the least fan. I, I, I wouldn't even call myself remotely knowledgeable about the game of football. I don't like it. I don't watch it. I didn't let my son play it, and he played everything else. But I just find it brutal and fairly meaningless. But I realize it's a great American pastime. But I do know who all the big names are in it, right? So first, Nick Saban decides he's done. He's retiring. And then I don't even know because I don't guess care enough. I don't know if Bill Belichick got fired or just walked away. I really don't. But two in 24 hours of the biggest names in football coaching, probably not a good sign for... I don't know, for such a time as this, when people are really looking for a way to get out of thinking about how terrible life can be. And now, mm -mm. now they they don't even have football. (laughs) They don't even have Nick Saban and Bill Belichick. Probably two of the only names I even know in football. That should tell you something right there. Meanwhile, I got a cousin Actually, she's my, more like my niece, um, whose ex-husband 
they just recently split up, decided to open up a business in Ecuador this month. <laughs> now, <laughs> I wasn't feeling particularly fondly towards him anyway because of the way the marriage ended. But now I'm looking at what was once maybe the most peaceful South American country, Ecuador, is in a state of war. This is a country that's like sort of wedged between its neighbors who are constantly warring. Just got a 36-year-old president. And within his first, uh, you know, couple of days, he has to formally announce that he's bringing the military in because of a state of internal armed conflict and he gave the military powers to combat 22 criminal gangs that he has now designated as terrorists. That's right. Daniel Naboa declared his nation was entering a new era. We are in a state of war. Unbelievable. They had 30 car explosions across the country. We all saw the group of armed guys that took over a TV station in the middle of a live broadcast, held the staff hostage at gunpoint, uh, have, have riots breaking out in prisons all over the country, seven police officers kidnapped in the biggest city in Ecuador, Guayaquil, which is pretty much the epicenter of the violence, People were being killed by armed men shooting at them indiscriminately while they're just walking in the streets. And of course, dozens of prison guards are held hostage in four prisons across the country. Welcome to officer. And the attacks, of course, um, they're claiming that what precipitated this insanity was the escape of the most notorious gang leader in the country, Jose Adolfo Fito Macias Vilamar, who had received some leaked information that the government was planning to transfer a bunch of these top gang leaders to maximum security prison wards. So he launched an attack from within the prison. It's not a, it's not a good time to be opening up a business in Ecuador, just saying. So now the government's fighting criminal organizations, and we're not talking about like, you know, a couple of MS-14 gangs or MS-13 gangs. We're talking about criminal organizations with more than 20,000 members. And so, okay, he turned them into military targets. Chaos, absolute chaos going on. And, and of course, what precipitated these criminal gangs in Ecuador? Well, it's usually the same story, isn't it? The never-ending global demand for cocaina that turned this country into a transit point for drugs, which then turned them into a bloody battleground for gangs. Okay? When you look at the international cartels that they've teamed up with, these gangs have enormous power. That's why they can pull off prison riots and they have all kinds of uh, kidnappings and car bombings and extortion and, and they of course assassinated a presidential candidate. 
this is about as bad. This reminds me, and some of us are old enough to remember decades ago when the, uh, the days of Pablo Escobar and the narco-terrorism in Colombia and then all of the gang violence in, in Brazil back in 2006. By early today, the military and police had apprehended 329 terrorists and killed five of them, according to the head of the Armed Forces Joint Command. In addition, 1,500 inmates who are foreign nationals will be deported to countries, including Colombia and Venezuela. We will consider that the judges and prosecutors who support identified leaders of these terrorist groups are part of the terrorist groups. You can't make this stuff up. It's a bad time. Under international law, when you declare armed conflict, you have to have two things that go on simultaneously. There has to be a level of hostility or fighting from an armed group and then a level of organization from that group like they have to have a headquarters, they have to have a chain of command. And I don't know that that's, those two requirements have been fulfilled, but it looks like the, uh, the new government has uh, ignored them, which of course opens the door for all sorts of abuses. But I'm sitting here in the United States of America where I'm watching an administration and a Department of Justice go after a political candidate of the opposite party. So none of this surprises me anymore. And the idea that there will be abuses of what few, what, how shall I even call them, a, a few safeguards that individual countries have to not descend into chaos, they're being ignored. I think it's, it's a reflection of what's going on in Latin America, period, they, they don't know what to do with the organized crime and the level that it has attained as a direct result of all the money involved in the drug trafficking. So in other words, to successfully battle these narco-terrorists, you have to dismantle democracy. And that's exactly what's taking place in Ecuador right now. Chief Police uh, Vic, General Victor Herrera for the district of Guayaquil, argued that it had to go down this way. He said in the next 60 days, this is him talking to the Washington Post, they aim to target the logistics and financing of the gangs which profit from drug trafficking, extortion, and illegal mining. Authorities will also focus on dismantling arms and explosives trafficking networks that enter through Peru. Herrera said several criminal groups were involved in this week's attacks, especially Los Tiguerones, and the gang considered the most dangerous Los Lobos, the wolves. He said Guayaquil is paralyzed for fear a day after the attacks. He said his own mother was stopped and held at gunpoint while driving on Tuesday and was only let go after she told the armed men that she lived in the neighborhood. People were stuck across town, weren't able to get home for hours because public services shut down, schools are closed, taxis are impossible to find, everybody is hiding in their house. Chaos, fear, and violence. 
Welcome to 2024, my friends. You know, that's why I, I have to roll my eyes when I hear things coming out of the mainstream press or out of the Democrat Party. Oh, it's going to be a violent year here in America. Oh, democracy's at risk here in America. Oh, will you see what these mega people are going to do on the streets? Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You have no idea the level of violence that's erupting all around the world. People have already forgotten about October 7th when literally armed terrorists parachuted into a kibbutz and a music festival and, and massacred innocent civilians, young people, old people, babies. And now uh, violence erupting everywhere and they're worried about MAGA people? You know, I am a MAGA person. You don't have to worry about me. I'm not going to be doing any of that stuff. Anyway, don't forget to download the app, the 850WFTL app. That way you can participate in all the cool stuff. In particular, I like the idea that you can be part of our contests and win cool prizes. That's a good thing, right? We do have such things going on all the time. And we also have podcasts that you can listen to on a daily basis. But here's what we're promoting right now. We have $50 gift cards to the Great Greek Mediterranean Grill in Boca Raton. We have a pair of tickets to ART Palm Beach at the Palm Beach County Convention Center that's helping to support the American Heart Association's Life is Why. We've got a four-pack of tickets to Garlic Fest at the Village of Wellington Town Center. So come on, good prizes. Download the app or at least visit our website, 850WFTL.com. Quick break and I'll be right back. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. So I also did get a chance to watch the press conference that uh, President Trump just held after he walked out of the courtroom. And, I, you know, look, there's no question in my mind that the tide is turning again. What we see happening is an acceptance on the part of the media, which is the first battle that had to be won, that the people are behind Donald Trump. You saw Fox, and Fox has not been making nice to Donald Trump in a long time. You know, that word came down from the top, from the Murdoch family. And last night, if you turned on uh, whatever it's called, The Bulwark, I think is the name of the show, it was um, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum and President Donald Trump sitting around like old buddies, you know, and Martha and Brett are like the so-called straight news reporters on this station. And he's out there. I really enjoyed it. If you didn't see it, you should watch it. Um, he's basically doing a, a comedy routine mixed in with a very insightful political analysis of what's going on in America today. And the two of them, Brer and McCallum, 
they were acting like they'd never been so happy in their life. They were literally yucking it up with President Trump. Now, he's obviously going to get the nomination. I don't think anybody doubts that anymore. So they were asking him like funny questions. How about, um, what about the people you've been running against? First of all, has he been running against anybody? Because I didn't notice. I haven't seen him debate anybody. He hasn't shown up to one debate. Last night, it was just the, uh, the two of them, Nikki and Ron. And he says, would you be open to mending fences with them? That's what Martha McCollum asked him. Now, the question she was trying to ask him was, hey, are you going to pick any of these bozos to be your running mate? And so his response in typical Trump fashion was, oh, sure. I've already started to like uh, Chris Christie better. Why? Because Chris Christie dropped out of the race a couple hours before that. So if you don't understand Donald Trump and you listen to that conversation, then you think this guy is nuts. But if you know Donald, and Martha McCallum knows him, Brett Baer knows him, the, the audience cracked up you know that that is classic trump at christie's expense meanwhile christie's whole uh ex i don't know what his what they even call that uh, christie ran as the anti-trump candidate right didn't get anywhere but once upon a time chris christie and donald trump were actually quite buddy buddy so if you know anything about Donald Trump, then by now you know that he will make friends with his enemies. He'll make friends with Vox News as long as he can use them. And that's what you saw last night. People who decided they weren't going to position themselves alongside of Donald Trump, ah, I heard it all. I mean, with the exception of Tucker Carlson and maybe Sean Hannity once in a while, and maybe Jesse Waters, everybody was like, oh, it was an insurrection. You know, they all went berserk. We, we don't agree and we don't believe and all this nonsense. But guess what? Donald Trump was very ticked off about that, but not so ticked off that he will not make up. It's like a lover's quarrel, right? They, Donald likes the kissing and making up part too. And there they were, imagine, that they had gotten so frustrated with Donald Trump over the whole January 6th episode that many of them, including Tucker Carlson, who famously texted, I hate him, were very close to being able to ignore him. And then they had to pay a settlement to Dominion Voting Systems because they allowed Donald Trump to and all of his uh, spokespersons to talk about what I still believe was an election that was mishandled and possibly, possibly, if not probably, stolen. So guess what? They fired Carlson, and they claimed that uh, they're finally done with Donald Trump. That's what Politico said back in 2022. And then Trump went right along with it, trashed Fox and said, oh my God, what, what are they about? They're going to lose all their ratings. They fired Tucker Carlson. Um, he was even talking yesterday. No, not yesterday. I think it was Tuesday morning. 
he was talking about how they weren't covering him anymore. And that it's too bad for them because they don't have as many people watching. And let me tell you, he was absolutely right. In the past year, if you've gone to any of these gatherings or watched anything on television, people don't like Fox anymore. They've turned to other outlets. Not that there are many. So I looked last night, first and foremost, I couldn't stand the Nikki Haley, uh, Ron DeSantis thing. It was awful. So I looked over at the McCallum and Bear with Donald Trump, and it was like, it felt a little bit like, do you ever go to a, a party where you have a number of friends who have been together in the past, and I do mean together in the biblical sense, and then they broke up, and now they're kind of acting really cozy and uh, getting a little drunk, and you're thinking to yourself, hey, they might actually get back together. And it started with Jesse Waters, who said, who po made, actually asked the only question of the night that was discomforting a little bit. He, after he talked with uh, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum about Trump town halls that they had had in the past and how exciting they were, he said, are you going to, uh, are you going to be asking any of the Biden questions or are you just going to stick to questions about the policies and, and how on earth Donald Trump is going to be able to survive all the legal cases? So he pretty much told them, you better be on Trump's side I don't think he had anything to worry about because the first question came from a two-time Trump voter who wanted the president to provide him talking points for friends who were wavering in their support because they think chaos follows Trump. Oh, no, said Donald Trump. It's Joe Biden who's the real source of chaos because, of course. <laughs> and then after that, a woman who's supporting DeSantis asked Trump to answer for all the people who once worked for him, whom now he disparages. And he replied by saying that people are excited to work for him and claimed that a two high-level generals called him right before he walked on stage to talk about how much they wanted to work for him. <laughs> and then they asked him about the VP. And he said, oh, I know who it's going to be. We'll do another show sometime. It's like he's flirting with Fox. It's classic. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, I'm going to be talking with uh, former Palm Beach Mayor Robert Weinroth, who's be running for a congressional seat in an upcoming, well, he's running in a primary. So we're going to feature him today as our candidate du jour. So stay right where you are. I'll be right back. All right, welcome back. As uh, promised, I'm going to be featuring as many candidates as I possibly can for offices here in Florida. This is our town uh, from... Miami all the way up to St. Lucie County. That's the bulk of my listening audience. And former Palm Beach County Mayor Robert Weinroth is my guest, and he has now declared his candidacy for a seat in Congress. So I figured now's a good time for him to check in and tell us what's the seat and what's the plan. Hey, Joyce. How are you? I'm good. How you doing? I'm very good. Thank you so much for allowing me to have a few minutes on your program today. Not a problem. So what made you decide Congress? Well, I've got to tell you, after my experience in the city and in the county, 
I realized that the next step for trying to rein in government and trying to make sure that government is answering the needs of our constituents is to take a, a stab at the uh, position of U.S. congressman. Mm-hmm. And now it's District 23 that you're running in? Yes, District 23, which is actually uh, split between Palm Beach County and Broward. Right. And the it's a, it's a pretty... Um... All I can say about South Florida is we have a lot of crowded primaries. Is 23 crowded? Actually, right now it's pretty crowded. Um, there are six of us in the Republican primary, so mm-hmm. it's going to be a, a, a food fight, I would say, between now and August. Okay. Um, but obviously this is your territory. You're, uh, you know, you're from this part of the, of the county. Um, you're Absolutely. Running... I've been here for about 30 years. Right. It happens to be my district. The current representative is a Democrat, Jared Moskowitz. And uh, since I moved here 33 years, uh, well, actually 40 years ago, I've never had a Republican uh, serve in this office uh, except briefly. And and then the district changed, and even he wasn't my congressman anymore. How are you going to well, overcome— Well, I think we're seeing a change now, Joyce. Uh, since the gubernatorial election, I think we've seen a real dramatic movement towards the right. Uh, and I think that this, this is a district that is ripe for a change. Okay. Um, Mr. Moskowitz has deep pockets. That's one thing I know because he's uh, close friends with— all the big fundraisers. Uh, are you going to be able to to get the money you need to run in a race like this? Well, I'm going to give it my all. I think that, uh, as you said, uh, he's got uh, an opportunity to raise funds because of the incumbent. Um, I was actually a little surprised to see that his report for the third quarter was a little lean. He was uh, less than two hundred thousand dollars in. Uh, in uh, receipts, but mm. you're, you're absolutely right. It's uh, much easier for an incumbent than for a challenger, and I'm going to be working very hard to get my message out and hopefully to secure the uh, the support of uh, people not only here in Congressional District 23, but throughout the country who want to make sure that the House remains in Republican control. Yeah, you know, because my problem is that, uh, you know, you got that money powerhouse in Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and she invests invests a lot in this district. I've lived here long enough to know that she wants to keep it uh, in the hands of a Democrat. I mean, we— Well, and I'm sure that they will certainly fight to keep this district in the blue side of the column. But as I said, I think we've seen a dramatic change since the, the pandemic. I think a lot of the people are moving down here from the Northeast because they are sick of the failed policies up there, sick of seeing what is going on with the infrastructure. They've come down, they've embraced the policies of our governor, and they really want to enjoy what we have here as a lifestyle. And I think we're going to see uh, when Mr. Moskowitz ran uh, for his first term, he actually did not uh, succeed in uh, beating the challenger in Palm Beach County. It was a very close race, and I think uh, there's a real opportunity here. I'll tell you the other thing I think he has working against him, and that is that he is in the Democrat Party uh, running in the most anti-Semitic caucus ever. And what was one of his big calling cards was his Jewish uh, following. And a lot of those people are very disenchanted with Democrats in general this time. Look, I think that the Democratic Party has lost its way. I think that they're being led by the nose by the the squad. 
I think the Democratic Party has not been a friend of Israel, and I certainly don't want to impugn the, uh, the character and integrity of uh, our incumbent. But this is a party that is not going to allow him to uh, support Israel in the fashion we need. It's become anti-Semitic. It's become really a hardcore socialist. And I think the Democratic Party, again, has lost its way. Mm -hmm. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think, as you say, that does make an opening. Um, You said there were a couple of others running in this primary? Uh, Yeah, I don't have their names in front of me, but there are, I believe, five other people who have filed with the FEC for the seat. Mm -hmm. None of them, uh, I would mention, have been in public service before. And as you know, on my CV, I've been four years in the city council and then four years in the county commission. So I think that that gives me a leg up in my understanding of how you work within a government. And I think they're more Broward-centric than they are Palm Beach-centric, uh, from what I can see of the other candidates. And so, uh, as you said, the, the, the best chance that you have of taking 23 is you've got to win Palm Beach big. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's certainly in our, uh, in our sights. We understand Palm Beach County, although it's only one-third of the population of the district, we need to come out in force. And I'm hoping, again, my past work on the county commission and city council, they understand my policies. They understand I'm a friend of business, and I've been there to support a lot of the objectives here in our, uh, in our county and in our city. Mm-hmm. All right, so where can people find out more? I know you got a website. I think it's robertweinroth.com. Is that right? Absolutely. And the last name is W-E-I-N-R-O-T-H. Just want to make sure that they spell it correctly. We're, we're populating the site right now. Uh, I've only been uh, officially a candidate now for a week. So we're just getting our feet on the ground. And I certainly appreciate you giving me this early opportunity, Joyce, to uh, let your listeners hear about me. Hey, listen, uh, not just my listeners, it's my district, so I need to know the candidates. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, and I hope you will uh, see me as the the answer to a lot of our district's problems. Okay, I appreciate that. RobertWeinroth.com, that's the website if you want to get involved in the campaign. And I've been telling you guys for months now, if you're going to, if you want to see some victories in November... You're going to have to put your uh, two hands to the plow and not turn back. People are going to have to donate money. People are going to have to knock on doors, or none of this is going to happen. you can't, You got to power these campaigns. This is going to be a really rough election season. If you think it's, uh, you know, if you if you think the media is going to be on the side of uh, <laughs> of any of these conservative candidates that are springing forward. Um, uh, you obviously haven't been paying attention because they're terrified and all they keep talking about is how we, we're the violent ones. And meanwhile, I never see, I saw another example of them shutting down major thoroughfares, these pro-Palestinian protesters. My thought of the day today was there's, you know, some legislation that is being offered up by uh, Senator Blackburn and I forgot who the other sponsor of that legislation was, to say, you know, what about our rights to traverse the roads, our Fifth Amendment rights? This nonsense of allowing them to shut down uh, major thoroughfares in in violent protests. You know, it's interesting. I was putting together my show for Monday, which is Martin Luther King Day, and I always try to devote that day to examining the work of the man as well as the speeches of the man, which are fabulous. But 
I'm looking at, um, at at what's going on around the country in terms of violent rhetoric, and it's all on the left. And yet, if you read any of these major dailies or read any of these websites, you would think that there were a bunch of MAGA people running around with Donald Trump hats on, creating havoc in the streets. That's just not the truth. And the idea that we don't know how to push back against this bad messaging and that we're struggling to find, uh, you know, even a news outlet that'll tell us, tell us the truth. It's pretty scary. These are pretty scary times, but I'm not, you know, that just makes me f double down and fight harder. That, that's how we have to win. We have to fight twice as hard as the other side. And we have to expect them to do all kinds of nefarious things and cheat. And we have to beat them at their own game. Not that we have to cheat, but we have to stop the cheating. All right, let me uh, take a break. We do have Eric Erickson coming up after me, along with Joe Pags and Lars Larson, the overnight guys. And then tomorrow morning, we get back to business with Jen and Bill. They'll be uh, wrapping up the week here. And uh, Brian Kilmeade at 9 o'clock, Dan Bongino at noon, and, of course, I'll be back at 3. But I have one more segment left today, so you stay right where you are. I'll be right back. Lap. So, uh, I, I don't know. We have a, a Secretary of Defense who just kind of disappeared uh, during one of the most volatile political and militarily political times ever. The Iranian Navy has now said it has seized an oil tanker off of the coast of Oman. And this tanker apparently has been at the center of a fight between the U.S. and Iran. So now we have attacks by the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels along the Middle Eastern shipping routes. And we hear from Washington that, oh, if they don't cut it out, there's going to be retaliation. Really? This all on the heels of the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who just wrapped up a week touring the whole Middle East, supposed to be cooling tensions over there, especially in the waters, and uh, didn't seem to work out the way he planned. Houthi rebels from Yemen have been targeting these commercial ships that are going through the Red Sea, through a, a key waterway, the Red Sea, and they're doing it, they say, in retaliation for Israeli actions in Gaza. Meanwhile, we're hearing all of this stuff and very little about what the Israeli actions in Gaza actually are. Now, we did have South Africa presenting at the uh, you know, war crimes trial, which again, is anybody, is anybody paying attention to that trial? Because I can barely find a story about it. You know, I, I saw a brief AP story early this morning about how that, that uh, you know, at The Hague, South Africa has now formally accused Israel of committing genocide against Palestinians and then asked the United Nations top court to order an immediate halt to Israeli military operations in Gaza. Well, that's not going to happen. There's no support for that. So what is, what is the purpose of this? I'm always trying to figure out, like, what is the point? And if there isn't a point, why are we spending all this time and energy on this? 
The Israeli military, by the way, says it has found evidence that hostages were present in an underground tunnel in the Gaza Strip in the city of Khan Yunis. They said they found evidence that they're there, and this is the area that's now the focus of the ground offensive. So the military showed the tunnel to journalists who were then escorted into a neighborhood which was basically filled with the ruins of streets and homes and a tar one of these corrugated tin huts that covered the tunnel's entrance in somebody's backyard with a makeshift kind of ladder which led to this very narrow underground pathway about two and a half meters that's eight feet and the tunnel was hot and humid the walls were lined with concrete and electrical wires and there was a bathroom where they said they found evidence that the hostages had been in there. Now, what kind of evidence? Had to be DNA evidence, right? So they said the hostages were held here in this tunnel system. He offered no details. This was Rear Admiral Dan Daniel Hagari, who's the chief spokesperson for the Army. No details on what exactly they found in the tunnel, nor did he say when the hostages were there or who they were. He didn't say if they were dead or alive. And then he just, uh, you know, reiterated that they were held in difficult conditions without elaborating. I have no idea what these family members must be feeling and thinking as another day goes by. Hundreds of hostages that nobody knows their whereabouts or whether they're alive or dead. I mean, we had some that were freed in the early stages of that hostage exchange. But, you know, there was heavy fighting. There's been heavy fighting in these areas. And if all the residences surrounding this tunnel are bla walls are blasted out and mounds of dirt, what, what are the odds that there's anybody alive inside of these tunnels? I, I don't even know that the Hamas is operating inside these tunnels anymore. Because the goal, according to Brigadier General Dan Golfus, who was the commander of the 98th Division, was that they had to get rid of all of those tunnels. It's not 360, it's 720, underground and overground. Israel also still thinks that the Hamas leader, Yehya Sinwar, is hiding in a tunnel somewhere in that area. So this is Gaza's second largest city, and it is definitely the focus of the war on Hamas. And the tour for journalists on Wednesday, they didn't see, they didn't see any residents. Nobody's in that area anymore. Because Israel ordered all the residents to evacuate because they're not going to stop. That's why I find it fascinating that you, you got a, a war crimes trial going on as if anybody's expecting that Israel's going to stop fighting for its very survival. In case you forgot, Hamas killed 1,200 people and took about 250 hostages on October 7th. That's what started all this. And yes, tens of thousands of Palestinians have now died, mostly women and children, by the way, because that was the decision Hamas made. More than 85% of Gaza's population has been displaced. It, most of Gaza is just leveled.
And so there's over 100 hostages still in captivity with their captors somewhere, along with the bodies of about 20 people that were killed in captivity. That's according to the Israeli statistics. Some bodies of captives were retrieved. And of course, the three hostages that were accidentally killed by the military. I don't know. You know, people in Israel are feeling pretty tired of all this. I have a friend who's going to Israel tomorrow. And I said, uh, you know, just be safe. Keep your head on a swivel because uh, there's a war. There's a war going on. The United States, of course, finally did step up and defend its veto of a call. Uh, you know, it vetoed the call for a ceasefire. And uh, I don't think they should even have to defend that. It was an obvious decision that they made. So in case you didn't think Ecuador was the only problem, or in case you thought it was the only problem in South America, Ar Argentina is now poised to surpass Venezuela with a 200% inflation crisis. That's right. President Millet is bracing his country for tough austerity measures. 54% peso devaluation. Inflation in Argentina cooled a little bit to 193%. My gosh. Does anybody not believe there'll be a lot of violence in South America along the lines of Ecuador? Yeah, there will be. So I thank you for your time this time. Until next time, my plan is to be back here tomorrow at 3 o'clock, if it be his will and he delays his coming. What lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. And then may God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America and Israel. See you tomorrow, guys. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.